Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So to kick this one off, we're going to go back to last week's episode, which was five New Year's wishes for those just getting into the hobby. Again, it was kind of supposed to be a fun thing to kind of, A, get some things off my chest as far as like the things I hear about day in and day out and the things that I wish would change moving ahead for people that are just starting to keep tarantulas because uh, I've done this for a while now, started with the Thomas Big Spiders site, went to YouTube, now we've got the podcast, and I'll tell you, they're the same things pop up over and over and over again. And I'm okay with that, and I can deal with that. But it was just a fun way, I thought, for folks just, you know, starting the new year, to let's take a look, because we're going to be picking up, I pick up a lot of new listeners that are just starting to pick up tarantulas and let's throw some stuff out there kind of in a fun way that they can maybe learn from and go hey you know what I was about to do this or hey I didn't think of that or oh that's something I did so the idea behind it was just to discuss some of the things the the top five things that really tend to trip up folks that are just starting to keep tarantulas and I did get a lot of good feedback from folks on the website about you know their take on it and some of the things that they do in order to make sure that they don't make the same mistake so the first one's from Eric, he says, the beginner mistake I made was jumping in hard and getting a lot of beginner species right off the bat. Now that I have more experience, I would like some more challenging tarantulas. Unfortunately, I don't have the room to expand my collection, and I'm not the kind of person who can just part with tarantulas I've been raising since Tiny Slings. I hear that one 100%. I know in the next few years, I'll have some males mature out, but the waiting sucks. If I could go back, I would get a handful of beginner species and then give it some time before making any more additions. So this is a very interesting one because I've actually run into this one from several folks over even recently that are at a point where they'd like to pick up some more stuff but they jumped in they jumped in deep they stuck with the beginner species for a while and again we talk about how addictive it is how easy it is to go from one to two to 22 to 40 so I don't think Eric's the only one that has found themselves in this spot where suddenly you open up the world to old world tarantulas and so or sometimes it's even just faster new world arboreals, whatever it may be, and then you realize you're out of room. And the good thing is, Eric, and I think a lot of folks that get in this situation is obviously cognizant of the fact that he can't get any more. A lot of folks where they start running into trouble, and this is where a lot of folks new to the hobby really start to find themselves in a hole, is when they don't recognize that fact and they continue to buy, 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 and suddenly it comes time to do rehousings and you realize, I don't have the room for all of these when they grow up. So I think that's an important thing to consider too is always think ahead to what type of room do you, do you have, how many, start to get a feel for how many you think you'll be able to keep in the space that you've delegated for your tarantulas. Because for many people, it's they don't have free reign of the house. There's a closet, a room, part of a room, a certain area. You have to put limits on it. It's one of those things that we sometimes laugh, those of us who have a lot of them, that we have spouses. I'm actually pretty fortunate in this respect, but a lot of folks have spouses who are like, this is the area you got. It won't spread out any more than that. And let's be honest, sometimes we need that because it would be very easy to fill an entire household with these guys and then be completely overwhelmed. So excellent comment, Eric. Next one's from Gina. I really love this. Many of my fellow ADHD people, no doubt, know all about our tendency to jump into the deep end of a hobby. So my number one tip would be know thyself and be honest about it. And that was emphasized. For me, this means a few things. Number one, honesty about what I have time and space for and not just at this moment in time. I know that as mine grow, I will have to expand to the other side of my office. And I decided that that is my limit. I can also tell that at 47 tarantulas, I'm really at my limit for what I can reasonably care for. 
Of those 47 tarantulas, only one is arboreal because although I think they are amazing, I found feeding and the enclosures to be very fiddly. So that's an important point right there, being honest early on. This is something that unfortunately a lot of folks find that they should have planned ahead for after it's already too late, after they've already made those extra purchases that have kind of put them over the top of either what they have space for or what they can take care of. That's a huge thing. I think I mentioned a while back, I had a point where I realized what my threshold was because the care of them was starting to become stressful and I felt like I was dropping balls. And that was an important moment for me to recognize, all right, I am at my limit at this point in time. And I think mentioning Gina mentions that at this moment in time, you can't just look at this moment in time. You have to look ahead. So a lot of times people have a bunch of time off. I know with the pandemic, a lot of folks were working from at home. They had all this extra time, but didn't take into account the fact that that would inevitably end. And that was going to leave them in a situation where unfortunately they can no longer put on that meeting on zoom or Google Meet, turn the camera off while they go around and do feeding. That was done. They're back at work. They couldn't do it anymore. And I have heard from many pandemic folks who did jump in headlong during the the pandemic year and a half or two years, whatever it was, it seemed like forever. And now they're in a position where they realize, oh gosh, I'm too stressed out. I can't keep up with this. So I think that's really important. Number two, I plan and I don't window shop. I don't watch very many unboxings that might trigger that sense of missing out on something. I don't go on fear not and sort by new, etc. If there is an expo, I look up the vendors ahead of time and they usually have availability lists so I can research and plan. That's a huge one and I do that myself. I can't tell you how many times people will email me and go, hey Tom, I don't know if you noticed this sale. I did not because I'm not looking at it because I don't want any more right now. I think the window shopping is a huge part of this and the feeling of missing out. There is nothing worse than when you've drawn the line in the sand, I'm not getting any more spiders and then you get that email, 40% off sale. Suddenly it's like you are missing out on something huge. These things are expensive and a good 40% off sale, if you spend enough, you can potentially cover your shipping costs. You can potentially own spiders that were way too rich for your blood at a reasonable price. Even 25%, 20%, whatever it may be, when you see those sales, it can drive you to that point where it's like, I need to have this. I've done it. I've done it recently. Somebody contacted me and let me know that one of the vendors had a spider in I was looking for. It was way pricier than I planned on spending. And I was fully prepared to jump in on it, grab a few of them. And luckily they sold out. And honestly, after they sold out, there was some relief because I knew I'd already decided I wasn't getting anything for a little bit. I was taking some time off waiting for some of these mature males to go. I have some older females that are probably getting ready to pass, old girls. So I can understand that completely. And that is an amazing tip as far as for anybody in the hobby. If you're getting to that point, I know the people in their dealers and stuff are going to get mad at me because that's part of it. You, you want to have these things, especially when there's a good deal on it. But if you're getting to the point where you don't think you can keep anymore or you don't want to add any more to your collection, try and stay away from that stuff because it even somebody that's got good resolve, it can be difficult when you see those beautiful sales or certain species you're looking for for dirt cheap prices. It makes it tough to kind of keep those numbers that we assign for ourselves and not go over them. Number three, I arrange things to avoid any out of sight, out of mind. All of my spiders are on shelves in my office where I work every day. Every enclosure is visible, easily accessible, and as clear as I can get. That's my personal reason for avoiding Sterilite. I keep all my supplies and water bottles right by the shelves to make sure everything is easy as possible. That's a big one. And when you mentioned the ADHD part and 
just being able to see things in a way that looks organized, that can be absolutely huge. I am the same way. And that was one of the big reasons why we realized at some point that we were going to need a bigger tarantula room because I was starting to stack things up in a way that there were ones that were out of sight, out of mind. And I'm not going to lie. There were moments where I would get up, it would be like three o'clock in the morning and like, oh my Lord, where did the spider go? I don't remember feeding this this week or this month sometimes. You get it in your head. Like, have I even seen this? And I would go down to the tarantula room. I'd flip on lights. I'd be going through the stacks. And sometimes what happens is you move something someplace and you kind of forget about it. That's huge. Whatever organization you're using, make sure that things are accessible, organized in a way that you don't forget things. I would highly advise against stacking enclosures too deep, meaning you have a maybe a shelf that's 18 inches deep, so you put a row of enclosures in the background, and then you put a row of enclosures in front of it. That is just asking for disaster, and I have spoken to people before that have run into the same problem, where it's, oh gosh, I just realized this spider had been pushed back. I didn't know it was there. It's dehydrated in a death curl. What do I do? That leads to those instances where you forget about things. So I think that is excellent, excellent advice. And then number four, I keep records. At a minimum, I try to at least snap a photo when I see a molt, etc. My sense of time passing is not the greatest, so this is especially helpful when figuring out if it's time to offer food again after a tarantula has molted. For those of us with ADHD, we know time passing is a big one. We lose track of time. It seems like a couple days. We realize it's been a month. You sit there and make a mental note. Oh, I'll remember this. The time comes, you don't remember it. So that's huge. And I channel a lot of my energy into areas of the hobby that don't involve buying more tarantulas. I'm glad you mentioned the World Spider Catalog because I've spent hours reading papers, old papers, running them through Google Translate, etc. It is far more entertaining than people might expect. I agree. I also spent a lot of time putting together other little videos just for myself and the occasional interest of family members. That's fun fact, exactly how I migrated to YouTube originally. It was just for myself and to show some friends and family, which has meant the opportunity to learn new software, etc. Well, quite frankly, that's how I'm where I am right now because a lot of this Tom's Big Spider stuff was to do something to think about spiders or to do with spiders that didn't involve me buying new ones. So awesome, Gina, amazing points there across the board, especially for those of us with attentional issues or folks out there with attentional issues. These are some huge points that everybody should be following to keep them from a situation where they're overwhelmed or they're not keeping track of things properly. I think a lot of this, I mean, one of the things that goes with ADHD is sometimes hyper fixating. I think a lot of us get into that zone where we are hyper fixated on this stuff. Where we are able to concentrate on our spiders. We are able to keep track of things that in our normal everyday life might be an issue, but these are excellent points to keep you from getting to that place where you're completely stressed out by your own hobby because you've taken on too much. So great points across the board. Next one comes from Adam, who was always leaving very insightful and well thought out and articulate comments on the website that I enjoy reading because it kind of fleshes out a lot of the stuff I say. I think we have very similar viewpoints on it. With regard to premium enclosures for slings with the small collection that I have on full display, I fell on the other side of the fence, but hopefully more responsibly. I've exclusively used arachnosis enclosures here in Europe, which were designed by a very smart fellow who'd been a keeper himself for many, many years. I spent a long time looking for a consistent, aesthetically pleasing, but husbandry suitable enclosure, and these guys ticked all of the boxes. While they have good cross ventilation, the top ventilation is minimal in most designs, including their sling boxes, which reduces evaporation. I kept a close eye on moisture levels, but thankfully, as the moisture isn't constantly evaporating out of the top, I've not had any enclosure issues, and I haven't lost a single sling in the hobby as of yet. The caveat, however, is I've used dram vials to start two species off when these weren't suitable. The most notable being a Birupis simaroxagorum I received that was so tiny, it would have easily escaped through the ventilation holes, and even if it didn't, would have been too difficult to reliably find to feed even in a 10-centimeter cubed enclosure. 
I housed it in the premium sling enclosure, but immediately realized my mistake. So I can see your point on suitability trumping aesthetics, and it's an important point to make. Regardless of the keeper's desires and wants, the tarantula's needs should always be more important. And again, that's one I really throw out there because I get the fact that folks who are just getting into the hobby, and I'm not saying this is wrong or something that you shouldn't do. I just think it's something that needs that you need to give careful thought to. Folks who are just getting in the hobby don't want a dram vial sitting up there. They want to show off their spiders. They want to be able to go look at, I bought this tarantula and here it is, and this wonderful tarantula enclosure, not a 16-ounce deli cup or a little bottle. I get it. I really do. So I'm not saying that it's inappropriate to want to put your tarantula in a premium enclosure. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that you want to make sure that you give your spider the best chance to grow up a healthy spider, a healthy tarantula. And sometimes it involves at least recognizing that something that you want to put it in that's really nice may not be the best thing for it. Or if it's not the best thing for it, recognizing where it falls a little bit short and making sure you compensate for that. So as Adam mentioned in this, the top ventilation is huge. We did an experiment years ago, my son and I, with enclosures to see what evaporated more quickly and a closure with moist substrate that had the side, the cross ventilation, or one that had top ventilation. The ones with the top ventilation, that stuff comes right out, evaporates right out very, very quickly. So that's something to keep in mind with any sling enclosure. If you get one of those premium ones, just a heads up to make sure that you're being extra diligent to make sure they don't dry out. The other thing Adam mentions, which is uh, incredibly important, the size of ventilation holes. I have some enclosures that I bought that were really, really small. But unfortunately, the size spider I would normally want to put in these enclosures, I can't put in them because the ventilation holes are such a size, I'm pretty sure they could get out. So now I have a situation where if I wanted to, if I didn't know any better and I bought this enclosure and said, all right, I'm going to put my spider in here and I didn't know any better, I could end up with an escaped spider. And I've received that one quite a bit, people putting them in exoterras and them getting out the little gaps around the enclosure doors or the little hatches they have on the lids so that you can run wires through. They leave those open. Boop, sling's gone. I've seen it happen with folks who like to use the critter keepers. They'll put small slings in those little teeny critter keepers. Unfortunately, the vents don't change size from the small ones to the large ones, so they're right out there. Those are all things you need to give careful thought to before you put a spider in an enclosure. So again, I don't want, this is kind of a nice way to kind of expand on these topics, to hear from other other people and to make sure I'm completely clear on what I'm saying. I'm not telling folks you shouldn't use premium enclosures for your little spiders or your spiders. I'm just saying make darn sure that whatever you're using is appropriate for it. Uh, one I see quite a bit is folks who are keeping moisture dependent species and they put them in premium enclosures, a lot of times glass ones that don't allow enough depth for moist substrate. Remember, you want to make your life more easy and make sure that if you are keeping a moisture dependent species, whether it be an arboreal, a fossorial, terrestrial, that you're giving it several inches of substrate packed down so that it holds on to that moisture longer doesn't dry out because it is much more difficult to rehydrate dry substrate than it is to keep substrate that's already moist moist and I can promise you that I've had a couple that have dried out a little more than I would have liked and trying to get that moisture back in trying to get those lower levels moist again is a pain so that's something you always want to keep track of 
So moving a little further in Adam's comment, he also puts, luckily, I did enough research before starting in the hobby to not obsess over temperatures and humidity. However, it didn't stop me from drastically over-caring, and it's a trait that I struggle really hard to suppress, even though I know it doesn't benefit my animals. When I felt confident enough to keep moisture-dependent species, it really reared its head and led me to overwatering enclosures on multiple occasions. While I've always managed to fix this, it demonstrates just how much obsessing over a certain aspect can be to the detriment of your animals. I get so many temperature questions, and they've been increasing recently, so it's definitely something that still gets a lot of excess focus from new keepers. And that's one I want to talk a little bit about as well. First off, the overcaring. I get it because we've all been there, and some of us, I still have an issue where I start to second-guess how I'm keeping things and do something that kind of goes overboard. We had we did the whole podcast about overcaring for our spiders. I think a lot of us... Even though we're informed, we may have years of experience, we still find ourselves in situations in which we make a move that ends up going too far, that over-caring for them. And then the fact about people obsessing over humidity and heat, guys, I want to make it clear, I've been doing this a long, long time. And this isn't like a, hey, I know everything. It's not. But... It is a, I talk to a lot of new keepers. I've said it before. I will continue to say it. I don't think people can really appreciate between the different, you know, YouTube, the website, all the stuff I've got out there, how many people I speak to that are new to the hobby and how many I have over the course of the last decade. And it's to the point where you start to recognize the same questions, the same problems, the same reasons for tarantula deaths popping up over and over and over and over again. And I have to be honest that when I first started the Tom's Big Spider stuff 10 years ago, I once it started picking up, the website was picking up, people were coming in asking more questions. I thought for a moment, you know what, this could be our spot to really kind of make everybody coalesce around basic care requirements to recognize that we don't need to heat them. We don't need to go nuts with arbitrary humidity requirements that maybe moving ahead, if we get enough momentum going with this stuff, more people keeping them this way, that it would make it easier for more folks getting in the hobby, that these issues with the temperatures and the humidity requirements would eventually disappear. And I think in a moment's frustration during the last podcast, it kind of reared its head that it's never going to disappear. I realize that now. There's always going to be folks that are going to hear information saying that they need heat, that are going to freak out because it dropped to 72 degrees. And they read that on some type of care sheet that it was supposed to be 82 degrees, that they have their Caribbean Versicolor and they have the heat lamp on it so that it's the 82 degrees or 85 degrees it's supposed to be at. And they're misting it down daily, but it's drying up too quickly. And this was a legitimate email that I had received last week that kind of created this the idea that, Let's just have a fun pipe dream and pretend like eventually people would stop worrying about this stuff. Again, it's just sometimes it feels like, and I was talking to a hobby friend of mine, that you're you're hitting your head against the wall over and over again because no matter how much you do it and talk about it and explain, hey, I have raised now, gosh, and this isn't a, a bragging thing or like, look at how great I am, but just showing that it can be done. Well over 100, I think I'm up to 150 different species I've successfully raised up from slings to adults without worrying about this stuff. I've done some breeding. Now, breeding's a different story. Those who are getting serious into breeding, that's where you start seeing people trying to, especially with species that haven't been established in the hobby, 
trying to recreate some of those conditions they might find in their natural environment that would stimulate the breeding response. So that's when you start seeing people do a, a cooling off period, a warm period. I want to make that clear that I'm not saying there isn't a place and time to worry about those kind of things. But for the majority of folks that I'm talking to, for the majority of my audience, that's nothing they need to worry about. That's just going to complicate things if they get in and start messing with that type of stuff. So that's kind of where my frustration came from. At the end of that, I had received an email I'm receiving a lot of emails lately, once again, asking me about how to heat their their enclosures. And this isn't necessarily, hey, it's wintertime. It's, you know, a lot of folks in the UK, their houses get apparently very chilly. And you're looking for ways to safely keep the heat up to a point where your spider is not going to be too cold. That's a totally different ballgame. I'm talking about people who have homes right now that are at 72 degrees. And they're like, I need to know how to safely get this spider up to 85 because I've read that's the temperature it should be at. That's the temperature it's at in the wild. And I've received several things because winter's coming. People are freaking out about temperatures. Several emails and comments lately of people that have found their spiders in death curls because things have either gotten too dry or too warm with them trying to jack up the heat and stuff. So that's where that stuff comes from. The frustration of doing this for years and years and years and trying to make people realize it's a lot simpler than it has to be. So apparently on Friday, I had some people message me that, that I had upset some folks over my comments on it. And I will say that I, after re-listening to it, I think that, that a lot of times when I do the podcast, and I want to make this clear, I try to be a straight shooter as possible. But there are times I get frustrated. I get angry. And it's like it, you just kind of get flowing. You're sitting here in a room talking to yourself. And sometimes I cut things out and I saw I sugarcoat them a little bit. And I've had people tell me, stop sugarcoating, stop sugarcoating. But the thing is, if you go out there freaking out, yelling, calling people out, being nasty, Sure, the people that agree with you are going to agree with you. The people that don't agree with you are going to go, you're a jerk, and they're going to move on. You're not going to convince anybody of anything. And it, it, it basically accomplishes zero, which is why I do that. And I've had this discussion with people many times in the past. Like, why don't you just go call this person out? Say their name. Throw it out there. It's because it, it, the hobby is such right now, and this is one of the things I covered in a previous podcast, we're a cult of personality. If you are a nice person or seem to be a nice person, people are going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And if somebody says something mean about you, they're going to get upset. It's like if somebody says stuff mean about me, I've seen, been privy to situations where somebody says something, people have jumped all over. It's like, don't worry, I can handle myself. So long story short, I made some comments about dealers that were starting to push the idea that they need to be heated. And let me just state, I totally, in my opinion, disagree with that. My opinion is they do not, I've seen you know, again, I, I feel like we've, as a hobby, seen decades of evidence they don't. However, to say that it can't be done, I think one of the messages that came out of that from uh, somebody contacted me and, and said, you know, I, you usually don't deal in absolutes. And you're right. To say that they can't, there aren't people out there that successfully use some type of heat, heating lamps, heat, heating pads, that would be ridiculous. Obviously, people use some heating elements successfully with them. Some people set up these huge terrariums or heat and stuff, and it goes fine. I, I would not argue that it can't be done and it can't be done safely with somebody that knows what they're doing. My problem, my issue is it's people that are just getting into the hobby, seeing this, that have no experience, that don't have years of experience experimenting with this stuff, that don't understand that hate doesn't have to be done. Those are the ones I struggle with. Those are the ones that I worry about. Those are the ones that are going to end up doing something that's going to put their spider in jeopardy. So that's where I kind of have the issue with it. Having done this for years, I know the majority of mistakes I see 
are from folks worrying about temperatures and humidity. That's not just me speaking from my own collection. That's not me just speaking, talking to one buddy. This is having interacted with thousands of new keepers over the course of years. It's reality. It's the truth. It's what happens. It's nobody will convince me otherwise on that one because I've just seen way too much evidence across the board of it. So that's why I got a little bit heated at the end of that one because, again, no pun intended, it's been heating up lately with more people coming to me with heating element questions. And I guess the way what it comes down to is if that's what you're doing, I'm not your guy. I have had people before approach me that are overseas that are where apparently the homes get very, very chilly during the winter and they need some type of alternate heat source. And I've sent them to people that I think seem to know what they're doing to do it safely, but I'm not your guy. I don't do that with the exception of, you know, back in the day, I had a space heater running in my room for those really, really cold days. That's about it. I heat the whole room. I don't worry about different enclosures. If you're doing that, I'm not the one you want to talk to. But unfortunately, in that podcast, I did make comments about the only reason people would be doing that is for money or a comment that obviously it's greed motivated. And that comes from the fact that I do see, you know, back in the day and from the email that I got from somebody that was sold tarantulas and the person that sold them to them, advised them and sold them heating equipment. That freaked me out because I was, you know, this is stuff that we dealt with years ago with pet stores selling people heat lamps and heat rocks and heat mats for tarantulas, tell them they need to keep them at a certain humidity, a certain temperature. That was kind of an old school thing. And what basically what would happen is pet stores would sell you the tarantula, which they wouldn't make a huge amount of money on. What they'd make the money on is selling you all the stuff that goes with it. So that's where that idea greed coming from and people doing it for money. But you know what? I had no right to say that because I don't know personally know the people involved in this. I was just going on past experience where when that happened, it was usually a way to make a little extra money or to promote something else. So I apologize for making assumptions there because honestly, I don't know. It just, again, came from a spot where it's been doing this. And maybe it's time. It's one of the things I was talking about with my hobby friend is it might be time for me to take a little break because it's obviously starting to get to me having to answer these questions over and over again and seemingly fighting the same battle. So for folks who, and it wasn't, I didn't hear a lot of noise. It was like Friday afternoon. A couple people shot me messages like, hey, do you know this is going on? And it's like, I honestly had a bad day at work and just didn't feel like doing it. It was one of the first times in a long time. I was like, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to take a step back because I really don't need the extra aggravation. But flat out, I'm not telling people, I'm saying my personal opinion and from experience, it's not needed for folks getting, just getting into the hobby. It's not needed for folks who are just trying to raise these guys up. You know, maybe breeding, that's something you want to look at something different, but that's my personal opinion. And obviously, as the saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. So I guess other people have other ways of doing things that work for them. And you can't discount that. I know there are people out there. There's uh, several folks I've seen over the years that do things differently than I do, and they have really good success with it. I just want folks to recognize that I am always filtering my information as if it's being delivered to a beginner because that's the trick to make this as easy as possible for folks getting into it. I recognize there are different ways to do things. I recognize there are successful, other successful ways to do things that might not be exactly what I'm doing. It's like when people come on and watch my rehousings and they go, well, I, why don't you do it this way? Because this, I find the stuff that I'm trying to show to be the easiest way to do it to keep things from escaping and having some poor person that just started off doing their first transfer have a spider loose now. So that's what it's about. So I'm always trying to filter it through that perspective. But again, sometimes I get a little fiery. I can't help it. I've been doing this a long time and it gets frustrating. Email this morning from somebody trying to figure out how to raise the temperature in their enclosure to 85 degrees because they've heard that's what the spider experiences in the wild. And then I have to politely explain that I've kept the same species for years and never had to worry about the temperature with it. So it's just 
that's where the frustration came from. I am not telling everybody to my way or no way. That's not what I'm about. It's never been what I'm about. And I want to make that very, very clear because I can see how that could be misconstrued. It's just, again, trying to give the best advice I can to beginners. A lot of beginners listening to this, that's where it was coming from. So no drama. If you want to do something different, just make sure you go to people that know what they're talking about. It's not something I'm going to promote. It's not that something I'm going to encourage. And if people come to me and ask me how to do it, I'm going to explain my side of it, but the last thing we want is we don't need any more freaking infighting in the hobby. So that's it. That's my two cents on that. I'm not getting into it any further. I mean, eventually I do want to, as I said, I've been planning a podcast to share some of the stuff that I've discovered while doing research, some of the ideas that I have. Again, it's just my opinion. There's no scientific backing to it. I try to look at scientific papers and stuff, but there is a reason why I feel this strongly about stuff. I have gone through this many, many times over the years. People trying to heat, that's where it comes from. But when it all comes down to it, that's my opinion as a keeper. So take it and do with it as you will. So moving on to kind of the main topic, I did feel like I needed to get out. A, I got some fantastic feedback to that podcast and some things that really allowed us to kind of expand upon some of the things to look out for. And back to the whole theme of this, one of the reasons I want to cover this is the fact that, again, we are looking a lot of the stuff I do, not all of it, but a lot of the stuff I do is obviously beginner friendly. And I know that I wish it was something like this when I just got into the hobby and was able to read some of this stuff. It would have saved me some time as far as researching because a lot of that's what this is all about. There are so many different sets of information out there. So many people doing so many different things that it can be confusing. There's a lot of white noise out there when you start setting up and my goal is just to give you the easiest way to do it. And had a lot of success with over the years, but we're moving on today to talk a bit about a little bit of an update on my Ephibopus species. As many of you know, I picked up and I actually, we just talked about one of my Ephibopus murinus who mysteriously seemed to die and then almost come back to life. Still a weird situation, but I've had a lot of folks asking me for updates because after posting the first bit of information on them, they're wondering how they're doing. They're starting to pick some, some of them up and they wanted to know how it was going. So good news is overall going really well. For those of you that don't remember, I got these from Aaron Cashel. On June 23rd, 2022, at that time, I got three each of Ephibopus murinus, E. Uteman, and E. Rufusin. So we had the skeleton tarantula, the emerald skeleton, and the red skeleton. And was ecstatic to get these guys because I had raised an E. murinus up to adulthood earlier on. It was a male, unfortunately, and I had been looking at E. Uteman since I first got into the hobby. I'm still not sure why I never got one, but it was one of the first when I was doing research way back in the day that piqued my curiosity. And I'm like, oh, this is an amazing looking spire. But anyway, at the time, I basically put them in three different enclosures. I had one that was a bit larger than the others. That went into one of the Sterilite I think they're two and a half quart. They're called modular latch boxes. If you watch my videos, I use them all the time for larger slings and smaller juveniles. I love those. And I set it up in kind of a, I know nobody likes this term. I'm going to just, I got to do a podcast on this eventually and explain my thought process, but we'll go semi-arboreal. I know people hate it, but all I'm saying, just to be clear, so people don't run off and stick these things in stuff that's like two feet tall. All it means is I'm leaving a little space up top for it. Not a full arboreal setup, but a little space for it to climb up top. And I have noticed they will use it. So I put in about three inches of moist substrate, packed it down, put a piece of cork bark leaning at an angle in the corner, not too, too far off the ground, but further up off the ground that I'd normally put it for, say, a terrestrial species, 
put some moss around it, gave it a water dish, and what it did was it went and built like right up to the top. It built its opening to the burrow right up at the top of the cork bark where it meets the side of the enclosure, pulled in some of that moss, and then webbed up around that area. So it did seem to want to come off the ground a bit. The one thing I have heard about a Phoebopus, and I've seen it in the ones that I keep, is that they do act almost arboreally or can act arboreally as slings. Some of them will burrow down. Some of them will go up. Some of them will burrow down and go up. So I have some of them that actually have burrows that go down the ground, but also go all the way up the cork bark to the top. So they're off the ground and they'll hang up up top there. Now, three of the other specimens I ended up putting in the 20-ounce deli cups, again, set up the same way with a couple inches of moist substrate, some moss, some cork bark kind of leaned against the side, so there was a place behind I shoved some moss behind it, and the other ones were all in dram vials, and basically was based on size. The really teeny tiny ones were in dram vials, some of the larger ones were in the larger enclosures. And off the bat, they were all doing well. They were eating well, growing well, with the exception of one E. murinous sling. This one didn't, it just seemed one of those issues where it was failure to thrive. It dug a little bit, it webbed a little bit, it sat there, it wasn't eating, it obviously wasn't molting. And then unfortunately, after about a month and a half or so, maybe two months, that one died. I, the worst part was I opened the enclosure and went to feed it and it was sitting right along the bottom like it was poised, ready to hunt. And I dropped the little roach in and I pre-killed it because I was hoping maybe it would eat pre-killed. Dropped the roach in and the thing didn't budge. And I'm like, that doesn't look good. So I took my little spray, my bottle with the nozzle on it and sprayed its legs. It didn't move. And then when I turned the enclosure on its side, it just rolled over. It was dead, but almost in a position where it looked alive. So that was a huge bummer. And then obviously the other emurinous, one of them looked like it molted. It threw its molt out. It was out in the open. If you guys remember the story, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but long story short, I thought it was dead. It had been a couple days, unresponsive, almost full death curl, flipped over on when I tilted the enclosure to see if it was alive. It just rolled over like dead on its back. I put it into a little container with just a piece of moist paper towel in it. It ate. I gave it something pre-killed. It ate. Ate again. It's now eaten four times. It looks great. That's going to be getting rehoused soon. The rest of them were all doing perfectly fine. So one of the things that came out and one of the reasons I wanted to tackle this now is somebody, and I apologize if you're somebody that listens to the podcast, just leave a comment or send me an email and I'll make sure I give you credit. But somebody who has raised these guys before mentioned that he has noticed with his that much like the versicolors or avicularia species that they can seem they need moist substrate but they also need good ventilation they don't do well in enclosures that are a little more stuffy and that i think a very good point he said what he saw what happened to mine could be a situation where it molted and due to the really dank conditions that it was struggling because of that, he said he's seen that before in environments that don't allow a lot of good ventilation. That really got me thinking. I thought that was an amazing observation. This was somebody who has raised them before. I don't know why I didn't think of that, but I think it's because I've heard. It's funny because when I originally did the podcast about the most difficult species or the slings people have had the most trouble with, a Phoebopus came up quite a bit. And it didn't occur to me that there might be some type of issue there. And I went back and I looked at the enclosure I originally had it in, which was the 20-ounce deli cup. And although I had put a ring, several rings of ventilation all the way around the side of the enclosure, I did it with a very, very, very small bit. So there wasn't, it was... There wasn't a lot of good airflow in that. So that definitely could have been it. And I will say, talk about overcaring for them. I've been extra careful to make sure that things stay moist. And they, I will tell you, that substrate was very, very moist. 
too moist? Possibly. So that could be a reason for what I was seeing, that I had created an environment that was too stuffy, too moist, and toxic to the spider, which would kill me, but it, because I'm at fault for this one. However, it gives me something to work on and think about and an adjustment to make when I rehouse them. So the good news is I have rehoused several of them. We rehoused, Billy and I are going to be putting up a video. I think we rehoused five or six of them. And again, we moved them. These were the ones that were in the dram vials. We moved them from the dram vials into those Sterilite two and a half quart modular latch boxes. I put in, once again, several inches of moist substrate. I put in the cork bark hide leading at an angle. I put in the moss behind it. Same exact setup, water dishes, and we rehoused them into those. And the good thing is I have much larger holes as far as for cross-ventilation in those enclosures. They weren't the teeny tiny. I used the smallest drill bit you could use to make those other holes. These are much larger holes, so there should be better cross-ventilation, as evidenced by the fact that I noticed the top level has, the moisture on the top level has been drying out a lot more quickly. Quickly. So I'm hoping looking ahead, I'm going to be a little more careful as far as how much moisture I add. And again, just accidentally, I think I hopefully alleviated any possible situation where they could become too stuffy because there isn't enough ventilation because there's a lot more ventilation in these enclosures. But I will tell you that when I set them up in their next enclosures, whatever I use, I'm going to make darn sure there is really good cross ventilation. This would be a situation where you want that airflow to go right cut right through the enclosure to make sure that it just keeps fresh air in there. Obviously, as the water that's trapped in the substrate slowly evaporates, it'll keep things from drying out too much in the enclosure. Obviously, the more ventilation you have in something, the more chances there are for it to more quickly evaporate. So I'll have to be a little careful, more careful with the hydration. But I do wonder, after hearing this and hearing him see the same, I believe he mentioned something along, have you seen the same type of deaths before in ones where they're kept a little more dank without a lot of ventilation? That really gave me some excitement. Not that <laughs> I don't like the fact that it was probably my care or maybe that enclosure that led to this, but at least it gives me something to work on and try and change. And that's what things are about, trying to go through and realizing if something goes wrong, if you lose one, is there something I could have done differently? Well, now I have something that I could easily do differently that in the worst case scenario, all it's going to do is make sure there's better airflow in that. It's not, there's no harm in giving them enclosures with more ventilation, but that's an important point to consider and an important point that I would obviously like to convey when I eventually do say a genus review of these guys because the whole point of having these spiders right now not just to enjoy them obviously I enjoy them I want to grow them up but the whole focus of this was to eventually do care information on them and this could be a vital part of that whatever it may be article probably YouTube video obviously podcasts where I discuss my findings on how to keep these guys and keep them alive that's going to be an important point so moving ahead they are in those now I do have two more that I have to rehouse it'll probably be going into something bigger so I'm kind of scouting out I was originally eyeing some nice acrylic enclosures for the older specimens. I'm not sure now. What I may do with some is start off with something plastic that I can alter. So I have a couple things I can use. I have my clear plastic boxes that those I could easily put a lot of cross ventilation. They're deep enough that it would allow some digging. That might be what I use or we'll see maybe something in the Sterilite family because the good thing about the bad thing about Sterilite is obviously they don't look as nice. They're milky. They're they're not as transparent. They were mentioned earlier in this podcast with somebody who likes to be able to see their spiders clearly at all times. And if that's the case, Sterilite's not the thing for you. But they're also very easily adapted 
to become excellent tarantula enclosures, especially for ones where you need something a little bit different. So if I want a fossorial species that I want to give five inches, six inches, seven inches of moist packed down substrate, but I also want a lot of cross ventilation up top, I can create an enclosure from the Sterilite container that'll give me exactly what I need. So definitely giving some thought to that now, because obviously they're not going to be in that those Sterilite boxes all that long. The one thing I can say about these guys is that they have been eating great. They have been growing well. They have been molting with regularity. They're definitely growing quickly, much like the last one I had, my Emurinus. He grew rather quickly as well. So the next one, I will probably wait till they get a decent size and start looking at something that would be an adult home for them. So that'll be something I obviously keep people updated on. But right now, they're all in the juvenile stage. They're all in at least, I have two left, I think, in 20-ounce deli cups. I will be rehousing them very, very soon into something larger. I will probably skip over, depending on how big they are. I saw one of them out the other day. I believe it was one of the Udaman, and it had to be two and a half inches long. So it's definitely outgrown that. So I will probably put it into something larger. But I will, I, I may do some experimenting to see what works. I may put something in Sterilite. As much as I love having all of my tarantulas, of the same species or the same genus and the same types of enclosures it just looks great. This may be time to do some experimentation and see what works best for me and what works more importantly, best for the spiders. So when that time comes, I will definitely share it. But right now, most of them are in either 20 ounce deli cups or in those two and a half quart modular latch boxes. They have been webbing up top. They've been webbing on the bottom. I love watching very unique spiders because of that action where they're burrowing and doing some kind of coming up top and going up high. It honestly makes it really fun to feed them because I'm never quite sure where the spider is going to emerge from. So for example, with one of my, yeah, I think it's the E. Rufusens, it has a turret that goes right up behind the cork bark up to the top and it webbed up the top. However, it has two entrances kind of concealed by the sphagnum moss that's around it. So what happened was I dropped a little roach on the top thinking it was going to spring out of the top. The roach climbed down the bottom like, oh, it'll come out and get it later. And all of a sudden it shot out the, the side underneath some of the moss, grabbed it and went into a little hole that I didn't even know was there. And a lot of them have done that. So it's been really cool watching them, you know, how they set up their homes, how they create their areas how they hunt, and I'm really eager to see what happens when they get larger and start showing some of those adult colors. So, Because the other thing that has really impressed me about this genus is just how beautiful they are from slings on forward. They start off looking beautiful. Each change, each time they molt, they pick up a new pattern, new coloration that is still pretty. And obviously, if you've seen the adults of the E. Unamon, the E. Murinus, and the Rufusens, they're gorgeous. So there is a lot to love with these guys. I get why folks love them so much. I'm glad to hear a lot of people are trying them out. I would like to hear from folks who have either kept them successfully before or folks that are keeping them now. What are you keeping them in? And for folks who have kept them successfully before, have you found anything about the cross-ventilation issue? Is this something that we should be discussing more? Is this something that people should be aware of? Because I am curious about it because it does make sense, especially looking back to when I did that, what slings did you have a hard time with? I remember, I, I think it was right around the time where I was either talking about getting these or I just got uh, received some. And I remember thinking, ooh, I didn't expect this one to be on the list. So that's something I would like to hear back from other folks. Again, I do not come with all the answers. Sometimes I reach out to you guys. This is where I get my info from. This is the selfish side of this whole Tom's Big Spiders thing is I have an audience to reach out to with a lot of people that have kept these animals before that can hopefully fill in some of these gaps when I'm seeing issues that I don't understand. So please chime in if you've kept them or are keeping them. Tell me what you've been keeping them in, what you do as far as ventilation, how moist you give them. Because I think the big thing is with these guys, 
which got me thinking is I've always considered them more of a moisture-dependent species. They like deep, moist substrate to burrow into. But do we need to be aware of the fact that if we're keeping it moist, we've got to make sure that things... I guess that's a good practice with any species, honestly, if we're really going to be honest about it. More ventilation is always better. Where we run into trouble, like we said earlier in this podcast, is when you know winter comes, things start drying out. Suddenly, those really well-ventilated enclosures dry out very, very quickly. And I think that's why sometimes people are inclined to restrict ventilation. I know the Tarantula Keeper's Guide... I've, I've talked about, I don't agree with this, has long said that a good practice is when you get those winter months or when things start dry out to restrict ventilation. I don't think that's ever a good idea. I think more ventilation is always better, but is this one we need to be extra careful with? Please chime in if you have any answers. I would love to hear from you. So that's going to about do it for this one. I have my dogs. We I got a late start on this today and my dog's downstairs. I can hear him barking. I keep having to pause while he's barking because he's ready for his walk. I don't think he realized how cold it is out. He's not going to like it. But anyway, I I, can't go, I was going to throw in another little topic here, but he's barking in the background. I keep having to dodge that. So we're going to cut it here. As always, you can find me on thomasbigspiders.com. You can find me on Thomas Big Spiders podcast. That's where you can leave if you want to leave a message or a comment. Please feel free to leave there, especially if you want to chime in about the emureness. This could be something we start next podcast with. That'll do it for this one, guys. As always, stay safe, and we'll catch you all next time.